Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Welcome to Dublin Bible Church. How are we? Anybody ready to go cliff diving? Anyone? Anyone? We have a couple takers. Yes, I'm with you. Um, it is great to be here, and I know we have many first-time guests. And My name's Chad. I have the pleasure of pastoring this great church and leading these, these wonderful people. And um, It is just a, a privilege and honor just to have you kind of in our house, and we hope that while you're here, you consider it your house. Um, and we're probably going to share a meal together, so it's just like your house, right? Just out of your kitchen, and uh, we'll be over next week to do that. So um, I would like to stop and pray, and then we're going to jump into the Word, if we could. Let's just bow our heads and pray and just kind of center ourselves before the Lord. Just maybe breathe a little bit. Heavenly Father, I pray on this great morning. God, I pray that you would awaken hearts. Maybe there's some restlessness in this room. Lord, maybe there's some division in some homes. Maybe there's some, some, some fractured relationships. Lord, maybe people walked into this place with such a heaviness where they're, they're just waiting for just one word of healing. God, no matter how we came in, I pray that we will not leave the same. I pray that as we jump into your word that we would be challenged that you would remind us of your love and that you would equip us to do something greater than ourselves. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your written word, which gives us just a, a way to live. And not just a way to live, but also telling us and revealing to us who you are, Lord Jesus. Because without you, none of this would even make sense. So we honor you and you alone. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible, um, we're actually going to double dip. I've got several scriptures. I don't expect you to be in every single one of them. Um, but what I do expect, if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it up. Um, we're going to be in, uh, Ro- or excuse me, in Colossians 2. But then also we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9. Now, we're eventually going to get to Colossians, and then we're eventually, eventually going to get to um, the text in 1 Corinthians 9. Trust me, we'll get there um, by the end of this talk. This is actually week 10 of our, of our series called All In. Uh, many of you have probably caught uh, most or all of the messages, and this is kind of a culmination of all of them, kind of all of them, all in. I don't know. It just works. And uh, so this is really going to make sense if you've been here, but if, if you haven't been here, I, I want to maybe give you a little synopsis as to where we have been. That way it will help you make sense. Work, uh, week one, we, we said that a relationship with Jesus starts with the come and see. And the first disciples in John 1, they, it started with the come and see, just this, this interest in the gospel, just to see who Jesus was. They, at the time, didn't even know who Jesus was. They didn't recognize him as God, but they knew there was something distinct about him. So they, they received the invitation to come follow me, but they scratched their heads, and they didn't receive that invitation just then. Then we pressed on a little bit further, and in Matthew 4, we, we see another sign. And Jesus said, come follow me several times in the Gospels. And we see that he said, come follow me, and this time they got it. It wasn't the first time that they got it, but Jesus initiates faith, and they received, they received the offer to follow after Jesus. And then eventually they would actually become 
not just followers of Jesus, but they would become Christians, and then they would then follow Jesus. We, we've talked about how in our, in our world that, that good old-fashioned Southern religion is dead, and that there's something missing today, but we, we believe at this church, I have to tell you, we believe in the authority of God's Word that God is not dead. Amen? He's still at work, and He's still reconciling families. He's still leading the broken and making them whole. He's still bringing lost children into His kingdom. And yet we know that a, a walk with Jesus, it is, it is costly. But we don't believe in just this, this cheap, easy believism, the kind of grace that costs you nothing. The, a relationship with Jesus and following Jesus, if you, if you look at the Gospels, it should really challenge you because it cost us everything. That every part of our lives have to have been radically changed by the gospel or in the process of that change. And that one of the key phrases that was talked about is, is following Jesus is more than an interruption to your life. Following Jesus becomes your life. It becomes everything. And the, and the, and the gospels use this term, and really in the New Testament they use these terms, born again. As saying that it's, it's born. Everything about you when, you, when you receive Jesus, there's new desires and new relationship and a new purpose and a new peace. And amen, there's a new hope awaiting us. And yet, he, that Jesus, if we follow Jesus and we're all in for the gospel, it's all or nothing. We can't half-step into a relationship with Jesus or else we would fall short. And yet, we talked about how we can have rock-solid assurance, how in this life we can know that we're saved. And, and I heard several of your stories, and there are people who wrestle with, they say, well, I made this decision a long time ago, and I've, I've made some mistakes, and maybe I've drifted, and yet I'm coming back. And, and we talked about it, and we gave very tangible things from John 10 of saying, you can have rock-solid assurance. You can know that you know that you know that you're saved, and that one day you'll be in heaven. And it's not on a condition of, of what you have done, but it's on a condition that what happened on the cross. So, and then connecting that, and the rest of, of John 10, the, the, le- the rest of that chapter, the next week, was talking about how we can have eternal security. That means we don't have to go on the, the salvation roller coaster. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? But we can know that we're saved because we're in the grasp of God. That it's not because of, of we're holding on for dear life, and, if we're, and I brought the whole chain illustration, and David came up. Um, it really could have been anyone, because everybody's taller than me, but it was David, you know, and I had the whole chain thing, and talking about, you know, how we're, we, we feel like our salvation, we have to kind of work it out, you know, like we have to hold on to it, and if we don't white-knuckle that thing, we may lose it. But I said, really, salvation has, it has really nothing to do with us. It has a matter of you give your life to Jesus, and he holds you. It's in John 10. Look it up. But we do that on a, base of, a basis of His grace. That was week 8. And then week 9, last week, we talked about how we're the body of Christ. And I said that each and every one of us has a place and a purpose. If you call this your church home or this is not your church home, you have a place in the body of Christ. And I said, if, if you're a part of the body of Christ, and you are, and if you're not doing what you're supposed to, that the church operates like an amputee. And that something's missing. If you're not doing what it is that you're supposed to, there's something missing. There's, there's either the, the voice that you're supposed to lend to the church or the hands that you're supposed to lend to the church or the, the feet and the readiness of the gospel, whatever it is that you are supposed to do. But the church becomes an amputee when you don't do what it is that you're supposed to do. So today... Uh, we're eventually going to get to Colossians 2, but I, I want to just share a couple scriptures 
with you, but I, I want to jump into a story first. In my life, I've had the opportunity to go, in my life, I've had the opportunity to go a lot of different places in the world. And, you know, it's, it was great. Some were great, some were not so great, but one of the places I got to go was France. Now, France is not, to me, it's not like the best place on earth. I've never been to Paris, Paris, if you've been there, French, Beret, where, and okay, I've never, I've never been to Paris, but I've been to France. And I, I really learned something when I was in Europe. And maybe if you've been in Europe, maybe you've realized this too. Europeans are weird. Okay, I don't know if you, I don't know that maybe like brand new to you, but they're kind of weird. Like like men wear not jeans and they're not khakis. They're kind of like capri pants. They like go short right here at the knees, but they're convinced that they're pants, but they're not actually pants. And if you have those on, I apologize. You can go home and change, and you probably get back and catch the rest of this message. I mean, it's awkward. I understand, but it's like they do some weird things, and like you know, and, and even like the people when they go to court, they still wear the wigs like old school, like 1776, you know. You know, George Washington style is just kind of kind of weird, kind of different. And one of the most awkward, weird, strange, yet interesting experiences that I had was right outside of Cannes, France. And in Cannes, France, that's where they have the film festival. Something else I learned there, just a little tidbit. Thank you for coming. Here's, here's a little something. Arnold Schwarzenegger has really small hands. He has like Zacchaeus hands, for real. He does. That's a little Bible humor. So it's like he has little bitty hands. I have bigger hands than Arnold Schwarzenegger. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know what I mean? That guy. Like he has really small hands. It's a true story. Anyway, so I'm moving on to something important. So then, so then I was in Cannes, and then I went to a city called Menton, which in France they pronounce it Menton. It makes me really sound like I know French, but I barely know English. So we were in, in Menton, and we took the, the train, and I wasn't supposed to go. I actually didn't have permission to go, and I went away from the ship, which is what I always did. I'm a rebel. So I went to, to Menton, and it's, it's after dark, and the whole city's pretty much shut down, except uh, when we had walked into this big open plaza, there was two things open. There was a restaurant and a pub. Um, okay, I'm not going to the pub, all right, so just hang on to that. So I went into the plaza, and it was amazing to me because something that was totally strange you would never see in this country. Me and two friends of mine were, were walking into this plaza, kind of checking the place out. The architecture is beautiful. It's France, duh. I mean, it's amazing. And yet I'm like walking around, and then out of the corner of my eye, I look over to my left, and there are these, I believe it was three carts, like like on, it was like, it was almost like you'd see in a hayride, but they were actually caged in. And right in the middle of town, there was no, no humans there. There was nothing there. It was just like these three carts, roll around carts, and, but turned out to be cages. And, and as I was, me and my two buddies were walking up, it was right in the middle of town, right? There were full-grown lions in these carts, like Real lions, like Serengeti lions, like that would track you down and like eat you lions. You know, like those lions, not like little cubs. But these lions, it was so weird because as we're walking up to them, I was scratching my head. I'm thinking, man, I've gone to many carnivals, like Bodon carnivals, like for real carnivals, state fairs, county fairs, been to them all, never seen this. These straight up lions are in these carts, and I'm with my buddies, and I'm just kind of, I'm kind of amazed because I'm looking at these lions, and, and they almost didn't look real. To be honest with you, they looked incredibly well-fed. And they almost looked bored. They almost looked bored. It's like, like they had lost something. Several years later, some things would start to make sense with me, and I started to think, I wonder 
if in the American church we're not caging Christians into churches? I wonder if we're not just, we're keeping all the Christians well fed and that now they're bored. Because they've been so institutionalized. We've, we've put them in a cage and we've convinced them that that's where they're supposed to be and we've fed them where they're supposed to be and everything about it is a level of comfort just like those lions. You see, those, lightnings, those lions, rather, they weren't threatening to anyone. I mean, I, was, I think I could have gone into the cage and I would have been just fine because they looked absolutely bored. They, they almost didn't even look real because they were so much different than what you would think a lion should be. And yet, when I look at the scriptures, and I've looked at them, when I look at the scriptures and I look at the American church, this may be a little unsettling to you, I sit back and look at the American church in, lieu, or in light of the scriptures, and I think something doesn't compute. Like, I see these people who were radically on fire for Jesus. They went out and they just, they did some incredible things for the gospel. Their lives were totally changed with the gospel. And yet in the, in the American Christian world, we have made it okay that people would just fill up church places like this. We'd pat each other on the backs and give, you know, give each other a boot and say, man, you're doing a great job and love to see you. But on Monday morning, our lives are radically different than on Sunday morning. And that challenges me. Because I believe in the authority of God's word. And I believe that if we were to actually take Jesus' words seriously, that the world would not only be a better place, but your lives would be better. That this city would be better. That the city of Dublin would, be, would not be divided in so many ways, but it would be unified. And I believe, that, and, and that's what God wanted us to do. And yet... If you're a follower of Jesus, you've, you've, had some, you've had a moment of salvation. You've started in that moment of salvation where you were lost and you were found. You're in darkness, you're in light. And, and things started to change for you. But you weren't supposed to stop there. You're supposed to keep on from there. And yet, I, I think back to the, the calling of the Gospels. And this, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase. It's in Matthew 4, 18 through 22. In your worship guide, I've actually put down all the scriptures that I'm going to make reference to today. So I'm going to fly through them for the sake of time. But you can go through them later on this week. I put them all there for your viewing pleasure. I'm not trying to hide behind God's word. I want you to get into it on your own. But in Matthew 4, 18 is, is the second calling of the, or of, of the apostles. And, and it started like this. Jesus said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He says, first, come follow me. Come follow me. That means to be a disciple. You're going to walk in my shadow. You're going to walk in my steps. You're going to do what I do. But then he continues. He says, and then I'll make you fishers of men. So you have to have one to get to the other. That's Matthew 4. Then Matthew 28. This I will read. Matthew 28. We're given these, this command. It's a command you're very familiar with in Matthew 28, verse 18. If you've been in church, you know this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is claiming, I am God. He says, I am God. You're, you're not waiting for some other Messiah. I am the Messiah. I am the person you're looking for. But then he gives us this command, these, these marching orders of, of the Christian. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. 
and to go baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So he tells us that what we're supposed to do as followers of Jesus, and as, as we started maybe on our journey of, of walking with Jesus, now, if we're to be fishers of men, this is another way of Jesus is saying the same thing in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He says, all authority has been given to me, and now I pass this on to you. He says, therefore, go. He's sending us out to make disciples. Interestingly enough, it doesn't say make converts. It says to make disciples. Now, you have to convert from something to be something so you can become the disciple that he's talking about. But he's talking about the ongoing, long-suffering, honestly, process of making disciples. That's what he's talking about. But he gives us this, this command, and then in Acts 1.8, there's this amazing, things happen, amazing thing happens. Jesus says, you don't have to do it on your own power. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He says, so I'm giving you this command to go do it. Go, therefore, make disciples. But then he backs it up in Acts 1.8 and he says, but you don't have to do it yourself. That's a good place for an amen. That you don't have to do it yourself. He says, I'm, I'm giving you this task, but I'm empowering you to do it. So you don't have to white-knuckle it and just try and hold on and try and do everything yourself. He says, no, I'm going to empower you to do it by his power. And then you see the, he says, and you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Samaria and at the ends of the earth. And that just, think of concentric circles. Think of Jerusalem as, as our Dublin and Samaria would be, would be our Lawrence County and the ends of the earth would be our state, our country, so on and so forth. So today, what I would like for us to do is I want to take the, the, the cage away from us. I, I, I don't want us to be institutionalized Christians. I don't want us to be necessarily comfortable Christians because it, when you look in the Bible, Christians who become comfortable, um, they become non-effective. And then they start walking by their own power and not God's power. So my hope today, at the end of this, at the end of this whole talk, is to help you. So we're not institutionalized Christians, that we're released Christians, but, but really, for all of us, we have five basic needs. So in your worship guide, there's a place to write down the five basic needs we'll get to eventually. I believe that there are five, I call them irreducible minimums. You can add to the list, and you're right in adding to the list. But I've kind of whittled it down to five things that every disciple needs. But every disciple needs it, so therefore they're not institutionalized. But in the same way, you need to help other disciples have the same thing. It's disciples making disciples, not just being discipled. It's God changing you and then you going out and being a vessel to change others. That's where we jump into Colossians 2, verse 6. The context of this is, is Paul is, is talking to the church of Colossae and he's trying to help them to understand that they're free from all the legalism and human bondage and bondage that other people has put on them about their faith. And he says, you're alive in Christ. And you have freedom in Christ. Not freedom to, to sit, soak, and sour, but freedom to serve, love God, and make disciples. So out of this, we're going to see our, our, our five basic needs of a believer. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue, that's an important word, continue to live in Him, in Christ, 
rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Colossians 2.6 and 2.7. So, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, so just as you were saved, get this. Just as you were saved, you're not supposed to stay there. Just because you're saved doesn't mean, hey, I'm comfortable, I'm saved, I get to sit on my hands and watch everybody serve me. That's, just, that's not what this is talking about whatsoever. This is not like caging you in. This isn't like, wow, I've created this, this comfortable country club kind of environment in the church. That's not even what he's saying here. He's challenging the very core of your soul and my soul and your mind and your heart and saying this. He says, so then, you have this great freedom. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. Continue to push on. Continue to be faithful. Continue to persevere. Continue. Strengthen in the faith as you were taught and rooted and built up in Him. He says, now you're starting to have a foundation, all right? You have a skeleton. We're, we're kind of putting tendons on this thing, and you've got some muscles on this thing, and things are starting to form. You're actually starting to look like a body. You're becoming the body of Christ. He says, keep doing that. You're doing it well. Keep doing it. You're rooted and built up in Him. He is your backbone. He's your strength. Strengthen in the faith as you were taught. Staying strong as Christians. So many weak Christians. And he said, and out of that, you have, oh, you're overflowing with thankfulness. I have never met a person who's on fire for Jesus that it's not overflowing to someone else. But I've met a whole lot of other people who have a desert faith that isn't trickling out to anyone. But I have never seen somebody who's actually doing specifically what it says in verse 6 and verse 7 who has not been just like oozing out of them, like contagious. Never, not once, not one time. So the first basic need of, of a Christian is spiritual food. Spiritual food. This speaks into every one of us. If you've been a disciple of Jesus for 60 years, or if you've been a disciple, a true disciple of Jesus for six months, this pertains equally to every single one of us. We all need spiritual food, and that's found in the Word of God. 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3 say it like this. This will be on the screen. It says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Another way of saying this is to be a disciple is to continue to develop a taste for the things of God. To be a disciple is to, is to continually develop a taste for the things of God. The things of God like forgiveness and confession and worship and prayer and Bible study. And personal study and meditation, not just hearing the word, but allowing it to absorb into your life. Not to be just satisfied with somebody else's faith experience, but to have an experience of your own. But all of us have to ingest spiritual food. He says, just like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. And yet there's a scolding that happens in Hebrews 5.12. There's a scolding that happens. 
This is obviously not the same book, but it's, it's the, within the same topic of, of taking in spiritual food. There's this scolding, and the author of Hebrews says it, and he kind, of, he kind of reprimands these people. And maybe you need reprimand by this word. I don't know, but I'm just going to read it to you. Okay. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. He says, you need milk, not solid food. But look at the exclamation point at the end of this verse. Don't, many times we read Scripture without emphasis, and we just kind of say, you need milk, not spiritual food. Well, you need milk, not spiritual food. But I think what the author is saying is, you need milk, not spiritual food. Get it! And he's saying, are you kidding me? He says, in, in fact, you've, be, you've been on this journey. You've been following for a while. Maybe you've even been making disciples for a while. You've been attending church for a while. You've, you've, you've just allowed yourself to live in this caged-in kind of faith existence. He says, you're not being sent out. You're not necessarily doing anything. And he says, it's affecting every part of you. And he says, in fact, by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers. But why do we keep going back to elementary truths? Jesus died. Jesus resurrected. Jesus died. Jesus resurrected. He says, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the foundation for your faith, but you should be taking in spiritual food and, and pressing on way beyond that. He says, as a matter of fact, you shouldn't be one who's just, just sitting there listening to somebody else teach. You should be teaching yourself. And I know that that word is, 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 a, is a word that's a powerful word, and maybe for you, you need to allow that to soak, that you're, you've just become comfortable in not doing anything. That maybe God wants to shake you up to say, yeah, I've been taking in spiritual food, and you know what? I'm just kind of, I'm kind of tamed now. I'm just kind of allowing the cage to form over me now. Maybe I'm just allowed just to be a little bit institutionalized. Maybe my, my faith is not something that drives me, and I'm absolutely comfortable with doing nothing. And maybe this word is saying, step up. Be the man or woman of God that you're supposed to be. Don't allow yourself to have the cage that's formed over your faith. Be the person, be the man or woman, be the young man or woman that God wants you to be. And don't allow Satan to convince you that you don't have, that, that, that you're not supposed to. Don't allow Satan to convince you that you're supposed to settle. Because the life that Jesus promises is abundant life. Not limited life, abundant life. He said that he, he came that way to give us, give us life to the full. Not to the half empty, to the full. Joshua 1.8. I love the book of Joshua. Joshua 1.8. It reminds us. And just as Joshua tells his people, but I believe this is so, so applicable even today to us. He says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Then, and only then, will you be prosperous and successful. You see, his audience was just like my audience. We're prone to wonder. We're prone to doubt. We're prone to get comfortable. We're prone to just allow the cages to form over us. That way, we just become institutionalized, and then we get convinced that we're doing the right thing, when in essence, we're actually doing the wrong thing. But he says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Talk about it. And if you're talking about it, that means people are hearing it. 
a group called the Navigators, like I believe back in the 70s, they came up, came up with this, this great thing, and it's, it's the hand illustration. And, and it talks about ingesting spiritual food, specifically the Word of God. And, and it goes like this. Think of your hand, right? It says, first we need to hear the Word of God. Like even in a setting like this, or maybe from a friend, we need to read the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God. We need to memorize the Word of God. And then we need to meditate on the Word of God. And by meditation, that seems like some, you know, uh, some ancient you know, Eastern religious kind of thing. All it means is just praying Scripture back to God. That's what that means. Just praying Scripture back. And there's just something about that experience that just welcomes us into the presence of God. But you have to hear, you have to read, you have to study, you have to memorize, and you have to meditate on the Word of God. The second, uh, second basic need, and like I said, this is my list. You probably have a longer list. Maybe it's a more comprehensive list, but for the sake of today, I'm giving you five. And the second one is this, consistency. We have such an opportunity in, in our culture to do anything, to go anywhere, to be with any people, and to have every excuse not to be here. We really do. We, we honestly do. And I'm not saying they're not valid excuses, but we can, make, so we can make excuses that certainly aren't valid. But we have to be consistent. The Bible doesn't necessarily use that word. It uses words like faithful, like perseverance, like stay with the faith, like show up. Oftentimes, we, we come into this setting, and I've been there, trust me, I haven't always done this, where I, it's easy to come into this setting and have the, all the burdens of life to kind of follow you in, where you don't, you're not able to actually you know, take anything that's actually sent out like this. And what happens is we, we kind of we miss what we're supposed to do, and then we become inconsistent in what we do because all the burdens of life. And, and what, if, what if we were just to, to be resolute and just make a decision to say, you know what, I'm going to be consistent to my local church. I understand we have, we have guests here, but I'm going to be consistent to my local church. I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to have my kids and DBC kids consistently. So that way they have age-appropriate learning Every single week. I'm going to have my kids in Arise, the youth ministry here, because they're going to hear age-appropriate things, and they're going to have age-appropriate material that pertains to where they are in life. But parents, we have to be consistent. And we can't allow them a bargaining chip to deciding if they want to come to DBCA Kids or Arise. You don't allow your kids, just for instance, not picking on you, but think about this. You don't allow your kids where they want to go to school, so why in the world would you allow your kids the choice of going to church or not? Right? Think about it. You choose for them these things, but oftentimes, and when I was a children's pastor in Florida, it was the same thing over and over and over. It's like we would have, I would have parents who basically relinquish their leadership to their kids and say, well, Billy, do you want to go to church today? No, I just want to play, I want to do something else. I, I just want to sleep in. And the parents are like, okay, yes. You know, they're doing one of those numbers because they don't have to go to church because they've given up their leadership. They've compromised their leadership and they allowed a, a, their child to choose if they're going to go to church or not. We're actually teaching them to be consumers. If we do that, we're teaching them to be consumers, that the church is all about them. It's not all about Jesus. 
And we're actually teaching them that, that if the church is not meeting all of your needs and the church is not doing this and this and this and all the, you're being catered to in all these ways, then it's okay to leave. But that starts with who? It starts with us. It starts with us parents to say, you know what? I'm going to be consistent. A, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be consistent in my walk with Jesus. I'm going to be faithful. He is faithful. God is the author of faithfulness. He, he tells us to persevere. That means that we have to push on through bad times. When there are times that are difficult for us, times where we have questions, we have to push on. We don't have all these questions and all the, the, the cynicism and the, the, the skeptics, and we get bogged down with all the details that we miss the things that are very clear in Scripture, like go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You don't have to have a theology degree to get that one, right? So consistency. The parents, you have a part to play. Now, if you would go in your Bible to first. Corinthians 9, say something about this idea of consistency, and we're going to start in verse 24. I'm going to kind of fly through it. It's a verse that talks about perseverance, faithfulness, consistency, all these things. But look what the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. That means the runners, what's, what's being illustrated here is saying, hey, if you're a Christian, you're a runner. And he says, run like you're getting a prize because you are getting a prize. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into, strength, into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, in verse 26, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Think of a boxer. Think how foolish it would be for a boxer to walk in the ring and just wear himself out just boxing, right? He says, I don't do that. I don't fight like a man just beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after it I have preached to others. So after I have preached to others... The idea of continuing, persevering, being faithful, being consistent. And he says, then I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So he says, I'm running. And I'm going out and I'm sharing the gospel. This is what's implied. I'm sharing the gospel with other people. And he says, I'm sharing the gospel, but, but I have to walk the walk as I talk the talk. And he says, I have to keep going here. Because I have this amazing prize waiting for me that Jesus is holding out for me. When I get into eternity, I know that what I do here carries over into eternity. And he says, I don't do things foolishly or I don't do things aimlessly. I'm consistent. I'm faithful. As God is faithful to me, I want to be, I want to be faithful and consistent to his message. Another thing is protection. Protection. This verse will be on the screen. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. 
You see, I love this verse, not just because it's a great verse and it's a powerful verse. I love it because it, it speaks into me. It says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, and all of those things. I think of bravado when I think, man, we can do this, and I think of testosterone, but it's not foolish testosterone because he backs it up at the end. He says, and do everything in love. He says, do everything in love. So for us, for, for you and I, we, we, if we're the body of Christ, we're to help protect each other. It's some of the basic needs of a believer is, is to be protected from the world. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to go out into the world. We're going to get to that. That's number five. But, but I, I, we have to understand that we have a part to play as Christians. That we have to protect one another. If we see a Christian drift off into sin, we should love them enough and protect them enough to say, hey, I just want you to know I love you because it's, remember, do everything in love. But yet you have to be strong. You have to be courageous because I really haven't met anyone who really likes to have a difficult conversation. Right? And if you like to have a difficult conversation, you're probably the person that somebody needs to have a difficult conversation with, if you know what I mean. But he says, do everything in love. So if we see a brother or sister in Christ drifting off into sin, as Christians, we're, we're to hold them accountable and, and love them and protect them and say, hey, I see, I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing, and I love you. I, and there's a word that's used in the Bible, it's zealous. He says, I'm zealous for your heart. I love you. And I love you so much that I see you drifting away, and I know what happens when you drift. And then we're to protect even other Christians from sinning. And we're supposed to protect our church from false teachers. We are. That's one of the things we're supposed to do. The basic needs of a disciple. We have disciples, even in this room, people have been, have been Christians and they know more about the Bible than I do. And that's cool. That's great. And yet we have other Christians in here. They're like, they don't even know what a gospel is. And praise God for that. Praise God for that diversity. Praise God that, that we are united in the gospel, but we don't have uniformity in the gospel, is what we talked about last week. Praise God for that. And that this church welcomes all kinds of people, the broken, the healed, the people in the middle, the people who are spiritually mature, and the people who are not spiritually mature. And yet we have a part to play, each and every one of us, we have a part to play to help protect one another, protect this, this church and this flock from false teachers. That's the purpose of elders. So the, pers- per- the person rather up here doesn't just the person up here doesn't just rattle off at the mouth and say some errant doctrine and the theology's gone south. That the elders sit back and say, "Hey, yeah, that was cuckoo for cocoa puffs. You need to back the truck up on that one, buddy." You know, and we have elders who will do that. That's what it's about. That's what we're supposed to do. There's accountability. So the first thing is in taking spiritual food. The second thing is consistency. The third thing is protection. The fourth thing is fellowship. Is fellowship. And all of these kind of connect. And Acts 2, uh, Acts 2.44 says this, All the believers were together and had everything in common. The, the context of this is just amazing because the church in this context is just taking off. I mean, it's just about to go crazy right now. In Acts 2, it's like it's, it, they're, they're growing by the thousands. There was 120, and then 3,000 were added to the number that day, the, the, the ones who were being saved. Then 3,000, and then we know there were 5,000. And then just think of it as a funnel, and thousands of people, and the gospel is just permeating. He's going out and going out and going out. And yet in all of that, Luke, the historian who wrote Acts 2, 
Verse 44, he says, And all the believers were together and had everything in common. How could that be? Thousands and thousands of people who, who were coming into the gospel from different, different backgrounds, religious backgrounds and ethnicities. and Everybody's different in different families. And he says, But we were all together. We were of one mind and one heart. And that's the very core of fellowship. The very core of fellowship. I'm, I, I could teach for a, a year on, on the, that word fellowship, and I'm kind of glossing over it. <clears throat> but how could it be that the church of thousands would be of like mind, where they were together and they had everything in common? It's because they knew there was something special about, about being a follower of Jesus. That is, we're followers of Jesus, that we're also following Jesus with other people. And I think of it as, as, just, as everybody's following Jesus, and yet we're all arm in arm. We're, we're, we're locked. That we can look to our left and we can look to our right and we can see somebody who loves us on our right and somebody who loves us on our left. And as far down as the line goes, there are people and just reminders of God's love and that at the core is fellowship. It's not friendship, it's fellowship. The difference between friendship and fellowship is this. A friend won't necessarily challenge you when you're sinning. But if you have fellowship, that means the thing that, that binds us is the Holy Spirit of God because you have received the gospel, the good news. That binds us. That convicts us. That woos us. That draws us. That links us all together. That's fellowship. And the last thing, <coughs> excuse me, is to be sent out. We see this from Matthew 28. Is to be sent out. And I would say this about being sent out be yourself. That's the last basic need that I have today. To, to be sent out is, is literally to be yourself. To be the person that Jesus has made you to be. And at the core, if you're a disciple, what you should be seeking to do is make other people who are like you. Not like you before salvation, before you, or, but after salvation. The, the new you. I was going to use the illustration of like a mini-me, but I don't think there was anything redeeming out of that, so I'm not using that one. But to be sent out is to, is to make disciples so that every single one of us, we're all compelled by the gospel that we would go outside these walls, that we wouldn't be just convinced that the institutional faith and the caged-in faith is something that we even want or we desire. We come into this place to... to to basically to have the, the spiritual food and to, to have the faithfulness and, and perseverance so that we persevere with people and to have the fellowship and to have the protection. But at the core of it, if we're not sent out, then we become institutionalized. And where are you sent out to? You're sent out to your family first and foremost. Then you're sent out to your workplace. Then we're all compelled to make disciples of all nations. I was reminded of a story recently. Um, I'd never heard this before. Maybe you have, but it was kind of the story of St. Patrick, you know, as in the parade, you know, as in, you know, Dublin, Georgia, everything's green, shamrock here, shamrock there. If you don't live here, we're weird with shamrocks and green stuff around here. We really are. 
And I was reminded of the story of, of Patrick. St. Patrick was actually raised in England. And I'm not going to tell you the beginning, the story at the beginning of his life. It's very compelling. I'll probably share it at some other time. But at the end of his life, Patrick was convinced that he was supposed to go evangelize Ireland. But his way of doing it was very distinct. It, it was actually, it was, it was kind of troubling. It will, be, it will be troubling for you. He went with one other person who was his brewmaster. I'll get to why that's important in a minute. Not root beer, okay, in case you wondered. And he went out, and, and he, there were many miracles. I almost said miracles. That's like total middle Georgia. Miracles. I did go to college. You know, miracles. But he didn't go out and do some huge Billy Graham crusade and, and just like lock it down to where, he, you know, hey, he didn't send out flyers say, hey, Patrick's coming to town. Let's fill this place up where he's going to be at the Dublin Theater. Crack the doors open. Everybody's going to come in and get saved. He didn't do it like that. He didn't, he didn't release a book and say, hey, I'm going to have a book signing at Barnes & Noble. You need to, to come and, and I'll, I'll sign your book and all of that and blah, blah, blah. And you can you know, pat me on the back and stroke the back of my head and say that I'm great. He didn't do that. He did something that was very, very distinct. He took a guy by the name of Meskin who was his brewmaster. And he went out into Ireland from England. And he went out, just he and his brewmaster, and he went tribe by tribe chief by chief, and evangelized. And here's how he would do it. I'm not, I'm not advocating drinking, okay? You, you probably have formed opinions about that. That's another message for another day. It's not mine. This is a history lesson. That's all I'm giving you, okay? We, we may differ on all this, and that's cool. We can talk later. But Patrick, he, he decided that because they were, they were drinkers in Ireland, go figure, Right? We've made a mess of that in our country, just saying. But he went out with his brewmaster, and he would go tribe by tribe, and then because each tribe and chieftain, they, they, they made beer, like local. They had their own little, uh, their own little brewery, and they, did, they made their own little beer. So what Patrick would do is he would go in, and he would share the, super, the supernatural work of God. He would reveal to them a better life, and he would also reveal to them a better beer. True story. And because he took something from their culture, and he said, Christ can make your life better. And I believe even in a sense, he was trying to make beer for the glory of God. That sounds so weird. <laughs> but I believe that he was, and the people were even convinced that his message was something that they should listen to. And do you know, as he went... Tribe by tribe, him and Meskin, they went tribe by tribe, chief by chief. And as they would leave, he would evangelize, people would get saved. And then, and then, and then I, I believe he would, like somebody would be in charge of that group. And then he'd move on to another tribe. And then he would do the same thing. And he used the same method over and over and over and over and over again. Thousands of people in Ireland were saved the same way. Here's the reason why I tell you the story. He was sent out. He was sent out from England. And you know what's terrible? When he went back to England, after all these people, God had used him in, in amazing, in very profound ways, and we would all agree on that. They, as he went back to, to England, 
they bashed him from not preaching the gospel the way that they did. It, it, it wasn't okay that, hey, people received the gospel. They wanted to bash him because they didn't receive the gospel the way that, or rather, the people in Ireland didn't receive the gospel the way that the people in England approved of it. And yet, Patrick listened. He could have stayed. He could have stayed institutionalized. He could have just listened to what everybody else said and kind of fell in line like everybody else did. But there was something compelling about the gospel message. And as the Holy Spirit spoke to him, he says, you need to go to Ireland. And he took something from their culture. He took something from their culture. And he made it better. And that's what the gospel does. 